Hi, welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. We're so happy you're joining us on our journey through the book of Matthew. Join us today as we talk through the way Jesus instructed us to live the good life. Welcome to Branch Life Online. I'm Josh, and this is my Lego house. In just a little bit, we're going to talk to you from the Sermon on the Mount today. We're going to talk to you about how to build the best Lego house ever. You should stay tuned for that. We're so glad that you've joined us during this online worship. Whether you're with us for the first time or you're with us every time online, we'd love to hear from you and connect. So we have an online connection card that we ask everyone to fill out every time they're watching. Whether you're watching the premiere or rebroadcast at a later date, let us know that you worshiped with us today, that you watched this teaching, and we would love to know that and just celebrate that. Thank you guys so much for being a part of our community and for being a part of the Branch family. We are so glad that we are now worshiping in person as well at 9 a.m. and 10.30 at our Branch Life Pewtown campus. When you're ready and if you're local, we'd love for you to join us there anytime. If you're an all-online person, we're going to keep this going, and we hope to improve this as the days go on. This is our Good Life series, and we're talking about how to live God's best life possible for you and for me. This is Jesus' teaching, word for word, from the Sermon on the Mount. We think it'll be challenging for you today. We are actively reaching into our neighborhoods and in our communities around our Branch Life campus each and every week, and we want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's serving in the campus and in our communities, to everyone who's giving on a regular basis. God is using your gifts in a powerful way, and it means so much to us when you give to God through Branch Life Church. If you would like to do that today and make it a part of your worship experience, you can do that at Branch Life Church slash give, and you can do that anytime online. So a huge thank you to all of you. We think the day will be a, a particularly encouraging day as we talk about how to build the best Lego house uh, ever. So join us for that in just a few moments. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, if you have your Bibles or your favorite Bible app, run to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in our Good Life series. A huge thank you and a shout out to Pastor Scott, who preached on the salt and light passage from last week. A great teaching that we hope that you will enjoy. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, run back and listen to that. We're continuing on with this study, and we're talking today about uh, building a good life right from Jesus' own teaching and his own words. Have you ever seen that commercial on TV where the dad has a brand new newborn baby, and he's standing in the middle of the hospital room on that little red dot, and he's holding the newborn, and they say, I'm there, right? It's that moment where you realize, like, oh, okay, I've got to do something with this. Maybe you felt that way when you got a new house or you got a new puppy or you got a new job and you're like, I'm there. There's something now that I've got to do that I'm now responsible for. And I wish this, this brand new baby, came with an instruction manual. Uh, maybe you've gotten your uh, furniture from Ikea 
and you're like, you know what, I'm going to put this bureau together, and you grab the instruction manual from putting that bureau together, you're there, it's time to put it together, and you get there, have you ever seen the IKEA instruction manuals? They're, they're almost useless. Like these little two little characters that are pointing at things, and, and, and it's just, like, you might as well just throw it out the window and try to do it yourself. But then there's other furniture putting together manuals. I remember getting a furniture a piece of furniture offline, getting ready to put it together, pulling out the manual, and it was literally in a different language. Like, how am I supposed to do this? It didn't even have pictures. It was all words. It was like stage 1-0, and then on to stuff I couldn't understand. I'm on my own. I'm there. I wish I had a manual. I'll tell you, the best instruction manuals come in those Lego boxes. Right? If you're like me, you probably have one of these Lego things sitting around and you're like, you know what? I would love to build that race car or that house or that dream Lego home or those things that they have in the Lego stores. But how do you do it? If you don't follow the instruction manuals, your incredible Lego house will probably come together a lot like mine. This is my best shot at a dream Lego house without an owner's manual. But those Lego owner's manuals are incredible. And if you follow their instructions, not only do they have pictures, but they have good, nice, short sentences to explain things. You can literally build the Lego house of your dreams, the Death Star of Legos, with, uh, with following one instruction step at a time. Now, don't you wish that life came with that same instruction manual? Don't you wish that you had that ability to be able to know what steps to take and when to take them and where to go and how to get there? Man, if, if God would have just given us some great kind of instruction manual to help us through life, raising children, working in jobs, going through the storms of life, wouldn't that be great? Today, Jesus is introducing us to that instruction manual. The instruction manual that we have for life so that we can build the best Lego house possible. Now let me remind you where we've been at and how this fits in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on the mountain. The crowd has come to hear his teaching because he was doing miracles. He was Jesus after all. And he, he like Moses, stood on top of the mountain and started to teach them. He taught them about true happiness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we covered that three weeks ago because he was talking to them about a kingdom life. And when you live in God's kingdom, the life that God's kingdom provides is a happy life. You're able to have joy and peace and fruit of the spirit because you're a part of that kingdom. You can have true happiness. And remember, true happiness is received, not achieved. Last week, Pastor Scott talked to us about salt and light. He's, the, he's giving us, Jesus, the kingdom purpose. So what are we about when we follow Jesus? We're about being salt. We're making the world a better place. And light, we're brightening up the place. We're giving God glory. We're, we're proclaiming the good news. It's making this world better. And we're, we're able to do that when we live with kingdom purpose. Well, it's awesome to say, hey, let's be salt and light. And Pastor Scott said, we can do that better together. We can be brighter. We can be more saltier when we are together. And that's totally true. But how... How do we be salt and light? Give me the instruction manuals for that. That's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to talk to us about kingdom living. He's going to tell us how to live in the kingdom so that we are brighter, so that we are better. So in this next section from chapter 5 through chapter 7, we're going to cover it over the next few months. 
We are going to look at how to be better. How to live a life that's, that's better and stronger and right. Do you feel like your life is broken or you're not sure how to take the next step? You're not sure if you believe in God or if there even is a God. You believe in God, but you don't feel his presence. You wish that you could be better, stronger, brighter, happier. Well, that's what Jesus wants to talk to us about. That's what hope he's going to give us. And that's the instruction manual that's going to follow right from Jesus himself in these next few moments. Today, we're going to look at how to be better and brighter. And it's going to come out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 20, as we get this conversation started. And, and this is what Jesus is giving us, our instruction manual for our best life. So if you could have the best life possible by just simply following an instruction manual, wouldn't you go for that? That's what Jesus is offering you and me. So let's check it out today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read this section of Scripture from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Let's check it out together. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray over this. God, help us to understand what this means. Give us great hope and encouragement from this, Lord. Give us great answers to some difficult questions this morning as we learn from Jesus' own teaching. In your precious name we pray. Amen. So, in this instruction manual for life... We're going to answer three questions this morning. Here's the three questions, all from verse chapter seven, verse 5, chapter 17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. That's an incredibly powerful statement. That is life-changing if you understand it. Here's what the questions he's asking, answering. Why believe the Bible? We're going to look at that in just a moment. Why obey the Bible? And then lastly, how can anyone fully follow the Bible? So if Jesus is talking about the Bible, he's telling us why to believe it, why to obey it, and then how to do it. It's pretty incredible that he's wrapping all of this up in this Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he's sitting in front of a whole bunch of people who believe in the Old Testament. A whole bunch of people who believe in God. And he's saying to them, this is why you need to believe the Bible, this is why you need to obey the Bible, and this is how you can fully follow the Bible. You see, they were all ready for Jesus to answer the question, when are you going to set up your kingdom? And in this new kingdom, are we going to have all kinds of new rules? It's going to have a new king, a new ruler, a new way of living, a new set of rules. Remember, they were following the Old Testament up until this point. And Jesus is saying to them, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to, I have not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. So what does that mean for you and I? First, why should we believe the Bible? Well, in that verse, in verse 17, he says, I have, don't think I've come to abolish the law and prophets. Jesus immediately is pointing to the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, as he sits on the Sermon on the Mount 
I have not come to get rid of the law. What does he mean by the law? What did they understand that to be? The law is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These books are known as the law books. All of the commands that were given in the whole Old Testament and the prophets. Well, the prophets is talking about the rest of the Old Testament. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jonah, the guy that got swallowed by the whale, Micah, Nahum, all of these books, Amos. All of these books were called the prophets. All of these books were written and were a part of the Sermon on the Mount's culture. They were a part of these everyday lives. There were religious people who followed these commands, who followed these prophecies, and all of them were looking for the coming Messiah. And if Jesus is that Messiah, isn't it now time to throw all those things away? And Jesus is saying, hold on. I want you to know that the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, is legit. That it is God's word. And I am not here to throw that away. I am not here to say that that's no good. I'm here to say that that is God's instruction book for our lives. Why do I, Josh Park, believe the Bible? I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. I believe in the Bible because Jesus says so. Let me put that up on the screen for you. I don't believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. I believe in the Bible because Jesus says so. In this moment, Jesus is declaring a truth that's radically life-changing. He says to them, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. So what's an iota and what's a dot? Those are Hebrew words for the actual letters and the actual marks in the Hebrew alphabet. The iota is the smallest letter, and the dot is the smallest mark. The smallest letter and the smallest mark will not pass away from the law. In other words, Jesus is saying and reinforcing this idea that the Bible, that the Old Testament, is the Word of God. I believe that the Old Testament is good and invaluable and essential for our lives today, because Jesus said so. I believe it because Jesus is the guy that rose again from the dead. I believe the Bible because when Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he said and everything that he taught must be true because only God could raise from the dead. Jesus, who has the power over sin, the victory over death, is declaring in this moment that the, that the Bible is God's word, that it stands that it is truthful, and that it is essential for our lives. We affirm the Old Testament because Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Jesus declared the law and prophets God's word. Jesus quoted from the books of Proverbs and Job and Psalms over and over and over again. Jesus talked about the characters in the Old Testament, Abraham, Noah, Adam and Eve, as real people. Jesus, who rose from the dead, is affirming and giving us the Bible as God's word. Then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are eyewitnesses to Jesus' account. They tell us what Jesus did and what he said. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as was Paul after the time of Jesus, who gave us the rest of the New Testament. And these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are God's word for us today. 
So here we are, and we're trying to get through life. We're trying to figure out how to make decisions for tomorrow. Should I leave my marriage? How do I raise my kids? How do I deal with mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting? What do I do in the middle of a pandemic? God has given us the Bible to help us take the steps needed when they're needed. An instruction manual for life. And Jesus said, I am here. I am here to tell you that God has given you his word for our life today. That's why you should believe the Bible. Now, you might have questions, and I hope you do. And so I tried to think a little bit, what question would I be asking on my spiritual journey in this moment? And a question that I have asked. Here's the question you'll get about the Bible. I see that hand. Here's the question. Doesn't the Bible have all kinds of mistakes? So anyone who, who is trying to consider the Bible, whether it's true for life, will look at it and say, there's a lot of mistakes in the Bible. And is it true, Pastor Josh, that the Bible has mistakes? And here's my short answer to that question. Yes, it's true. The Bible has mistakes. You see, when we come to the Bible, we are not reading God's Word. And I know that sounds counterproductive. What you are reading is a copy of God's Word. As a matter of fact, you're not just reading a copy, you're reading a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of God's Word. This was all copied from uh, speaking. We have in our hands today a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of oral tradition passed down from the time of Jesus, from the time of Moses, from the time of Job, in some cases thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. What happens when a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy is made? And remember, they don't have Xerox machines. They don't have copiers. These are handwritten notes, sometimes verbally written notes that are passed from person to person to person. In those copies of copies of copies, there are mistakes. Sometimes they get a letter wrong or a mark wrong. Sometimes they get a sentence wrong or a paragraph is in the wrong place. And we have from Genesis through Revelation, copies of copies of copies that don't match. They're called variants, where one, where one sentence, one letter will vary from another letter. And this has affected our copies or our versions of the Bible. Remember, God inspired, God's word were given originally to people in a different language, in a different place, in a different time. And what we have in our English language today is simply a copy or a translation. But here's the promise that God makes in this passage. He says, not one dot, not one iota will pass away from the law. Even in these copies, God is preserving his truth and his word. You can rest assured that even though there are sometimes spelling mistakes or sometimes variants or sometimes changes that we've seen in some of these places, that by and large, all of these grammatical spelling or copy errors are really incredibly minor, that we found them, that we know about them, 
that we can compare and contrast them. We can look at the oldest copies versus the newest copies and see that the vast large percentage of it, the guts of it, the, the main truths of it are all legitimate and the same. As a matter of fact, having this many copies gives us greater confidence that the words we are reading now are actually the words that God gave in the original languages. We can be sure that we are reading every dot and every iota from God himself that he's passed along to us, even though there are variants and mistakes. Here's, here's the thing that I want to tell you. God's message is not no mistake. There are no errors in God's word. There is nothing that is wrong with what God has communicated to us. Are there differences in the copies? Yes, but that gives us more confidence that we can be sure that we have God's word with us today. No other book has been more scrutinized. No other uh, writing has been more tested than God's word has been tested. And where something may have gone wrong, we're able to correct it. All you simply need to have in order to understand where you might be coming across a variant is a good study Bible. A good study Bible will tell you that there is some disagreement or there's some difference in this sentence. And they'll explain that difference and they'll tell you what, it could what impact it could possibly have on the meaning. There are actually two paragraphs, one in the book of Mark and I think another in the book of John, that don't appear in some of the earliest uh, translations. The paragraph about handling snakes, for example. So a good study Bible will say, hey, the earliest translations, the earliest copies don't have this paragraph. And so we take that into account and try to understand how that happened, why that happened, and what of God's word is still preserved. God is actively preserving his word. Yes, there are variants, but don't allow that to shake your confidence in God's word. It is still the message that is without error. It is still the truth of God, and you can have even greater confidence in knowing that we are looking and scrutinizing all of these copies so we can be sure we have God's word himself. We have this promise from God that not one dot, not one iota will pass. So moving on, we go to the second question, why obey the Bible? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them. So he's, he's saying to them that these commands in the Old Testament, the commands that you're going to have now in the New Testament, they stand. All right, There's something that's going to remain, that's going to continue. Look at the next section in his teaching. Therefore, whoever relaxes the one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. These commands that are in the, old Bi in the Bible are still to be followed. They carry weight in our lives. They matter to us. And we're supposed to teach each other to follow them. That's what we do when we have Bible study. When we look into God's word, we're trying to understand his commands, his examples, so that we can live the life he's asking us to live. God gives us these commands for our protection and for our good. He's saying that these things stand. But if you do teach them, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a good thing. 
to follow the commands of God himself. The creator of the universe has given you instructions so you can live the best life possible. If I'm the creator of the Bureau and I want you to put the Bureau together, I'm going to give you instructions how to do that. You will want to follow my instructions. If God created us and he wants us to live the best life possible, he's given us instructions on how to do that. We should want to follow God's instructions, even if it doesn't make sense to me, especially if it doesn't make sense to me, because he's God. So we obey the Bible because Jesus says so. Remember, Jesus is the guy who rose from the dead. Jesus is the guy who has victory over life and death himself. Jesus is God. And so if Jesus says obey the Bible, well, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. So here's the question that you might have. Uh, uh, Pastor Josh, Pastor Josh, I have a question. All right, I see that question. What is it? Do we have to obey all the commands? Did you know that there's some pretty crazy commands in the Bible? Uh, if you start looking at the Old Testament in particular, you're going to find some commands that say, don't eat shellfish. I had shrimp last night. There's commands in the Bible that say don't wear clothes that come from two different threads. I have a polyester and cotton blend on right now. There are commands in the Bible that talk about covering your head and not braiding your hair. There's commands in the Bible about uh, keeping the Sabbath day holy. There's commands in the Bible about sacrificing doves and lambs and cows. Do we have to obey all of those commands? That's a pretty good question. And that's one question that we don't have time to dive into all the details about. But the short answer is this. The commands given in the Bible were given to us in a specific time for a specific group for a specific purpose. One of the things that is our job is to figure out what commands were given to what group for what time and for what purpose. So there are some commands that are for everyone and every time and everywhere. There are some commands that were just for the people of Israel. There are some commands that are just for the church. There are some commands that are for unbelievers or for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some commands that were for a certain culture in a certain period. And there are some commands for a culture in a period yet to come. Well, how do we understand those commands? First, let's take a little pop quiz. I want you in the next 10 to 15 seconds to ask yourself, what are the Ten Commandments? You know, the Ten Commandments, the things that are on the plaques outside of courthouses. Do you know the Ten Commandments? Quick, get a piece of paper, start writing things down. I'm going to do it here on this board and see if we can't remember in our little pop quiz, you're going to get a score between 1 and 10, what the Ten Commandments are. All right, ready? Go. You should hear the Jeopardy theme song in your head right now. I'm writing 1, 2, 3, and 4. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. These ten commandments, which have uh, transformed our world, should be common knowledge. Do you know them? Give you another ten seconds. Ten, nine. Eight, seven, six, uh, five, four, three, two, one. 
All right, get out your piece of paper and your little notebook and let's uh, grade your quiz. The first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, don't make any graven image, so no idols. Commandment number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. God, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Five, honor your father and mother for its first commandment with promise. Six, thou shalt not murder. Seven, you shouldn't commit adultery. Eight, no stealing. Number nine, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And number ten, don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, be content with the life that you have. So here's the question. Do these Ten Commandments still stand? They were given at a specific time. They were given after Moses came down off of the Ten Commandments. They were given to a specific group. They were given to the Israelites. As a matter of fact, if you read these in Exodus, some of those weird commands that I talked to you about earlier, about two different kinds of clothes and everything like that, follow right after these Ten Commandments. They were given for a specific purpose. Now here's where it gets interesting. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but that you still need to obey it. Jesus himself fulfills the purpose of a lot of these laws. And so when you understand the purpose, and the short answer is, the Ten Commandments are given for a moral purpose. Some of the other commandments were given for a, a, a ceremonial purpose. This is how we worship during this time. That some were given uh, us to, to point to a coming Messiah. Well, when Jesus came, that Messiah came, and so the purpose for that law went away. The Sabbath, for example, is given to us for a specific reason of rest. When we learn the significance of rest. We can understand what it means to actually follow the Sabbath and how we do those things. So yes, we obey the commands in the Bible. We obey those commands that were given specifically for us, for a purpose that is still stands, and for a, for a time that still matters. Our directive, our challenge, is understanding which is which. Here's the challenge that goes in understanding God's Word. We as Christians get accused of picking and choosing. We pick the verses that we like to follow, the commands that we want, and we get rid of the commands that we don't. And that is a valid concern. If any of the commands still stand, then we must follow them because that's God's instruction for our life. But when we understand the Bible in its totality, we understand what commands still stand or what commands only stood for a season. So which commands do we obey? We obey the commands that stand for us today. As we continue on in our look, we want to answer our third and final question. Do you think that, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. So here's the third question. How can anyone fully follow the Bible? I mean, the standard in the Bible is high. It can't be something that anybody is able to do. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. How can I be perfect? How can I live a good life? I even just take the Ten Commandments and man, oh man, I fall short in those all the time. So how are we supposed to fulfill the whole law? How do we follow the Bible completely? Jesus says this as he closes out this section of his teaching. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus took the most righteous person in their culture, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of their day. These are the people that took all of the crazy laws and they followed them. They followed them to a T. They were strict beyond all strictness. 
They didn't want to go one day without following these rules. And to break a rule was horrifying and they had rules to follow if they broke a rule. These were the guys that everybody looked up to. And Jesus said, unless you are more righteous than them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, here's the thing that happened to everyone on that mountain. They went, well, I'm done. I can't do it. There is no way for me to be more righteous than them. Think about the most righteous person that you know. Think about how they live their lives. Could you beat that? Jesus is saying, and he's putting an impossible standard to all of these people. Unless you do that, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how in the world do we live that kind of righteous life? Know Jesus fully to fully follow the Bible. You see, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. The fullness of the law is found in following Jesus. Our mission in life is not to follow a set of rules. Our mission in life is to follow Jesus Christ himself. In following him, you will follow the rules. When you follow Jesus, the rules become easy because the fullness of the law is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot live a perfect life. We cannot live up to this standard. Only Jesus can do that. So we accept his righteousness done on our behalf so that we can live then the best life possible. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so crazy. Jesus holds up the law. He holds up the standard. And everyone is now extremely deflated as they sit there going, I thought you were bringing something new. And then Jesus says, I am. I'm bringing something new and it's me. And when you follow me, when you're deeply rooted in me, you can then bear much fruit. To know Jesus means you know how to fully follow the Bible. So we pursue knowing him. And the Bible helps us do that. But so does prayer. So does creation. So does loving one another. So does serving and giving radically. All of these things help us to know Jesus more so that we can have the instruction manual for life. Now, you probably have a question. Is it possible to live a perfect life? Is it possible for me to then live this life that's perfect, that Jesus is seeming to ask me to live? How can I do better? That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. Remember, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about a solid rock versus a sinking sand. Jesus says in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, on chapter, in chapter 7, if you listen to my words, you will be like a house that's built on the rock, and when the storms come, it'll stand. But if you don't listen to my words, you'll be like a, someone who builds their house on the sand, and when the storm comes, it'll fall, it'll collapse. So who is Jesus talking about? What's the comparison? Who are those people that stand on the rock versus those people that stand on the, on the sand? He is not talking about people who do not believe in God. Jesus is talking about people who are religious. He's talking about the religious leaders. He's talking about those full of religiosity that are trying to live their lives by going through a set of rules. He says if you try to live a religious life, if you try to be righteous by your works, your house will collapse when that time comes. But if you try to live a righteous life through the righteousness that the gospel brings, gospel goodness, Tim Keller calls it, this gospel that only comes through Jesus Christ, Jesus then becomes your rock, not 
your righteous act. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will spend the rest of his time comparing religion versus a relationship with Jesus. Gospel goodness versus religious acts. And he's saying in order to truly be righteous, you need to fully follow me. Jesus is going to take the Ten Commandments and he's going to turn them on their head. In the next few sections of the chapter, you're going to hear Jesus say, you heard it said that you shall not murder. But I say to you, to hate your brother is to murder. He's going to say to them about, he's going to talk to them about adultery. He's going to talk to them about keeping their word and their oaths. And he's going to make this constant comparison between religion and Jesus's righteousness. You see, Jesus himself was asked, what are the greatest commandments? And to sum it up, Jesus says, number one, you need to love God with all your heart. Love God with all your heart. That's the first and greatest commandment. Then he says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. That's like it. This idea of loving God and loving your neighbor fully rests on all the law and prophets. So in the first four commandments, you, you have commandments about loving God. Don't have any other idols. Uh, don't, don't put any gods before me. Don't take God's name in, in vain. Reserve the Sabbath so that you can rest in God. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But then how do we treat other people? We honor our parents. We don't murder. We don't commit adultery. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't covet other people's things. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. And what I want to tell you is it's not as much about the rules as it is about following God with your heart. And when you love God and love neighbor, these rules don't even need to be said. They are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's constantly going against this idea of being religious versus being righteous in God's eyes. So here's this third question. And it's a question that you might be asking yourself. How do we do this? What's it look like to be righteous versus religious? Maybe you're out there and you've been following a religion your entire life. Maybe you've been going to church. Maybe you've been part of a religious system. Maybe you even call yourself a Christian. And what God is saying, and what Jesus is saying in these moments is watch out for religiosity. Don't just be a religious person, but be someone who's fully following after Jesus. You can spend your life chasing religion and still fall short of knowing God and being a part of God's kingdom. The Bible says that not everyone who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. People who claim to know God don't actually know him. Those are religious people. You see, religious people act and live a certain way. Here's, here's what we want to do, and I want you to take this little litmus test with me as we close out our thought today. What does religious or someone who is bound by religion look like and act like? Well, number one, they're concerned with acts. They're concerned with actions. They're concerned with deeds. They want to know what you do, when you do it, and how you do it. They want to see what's happening on the outside. When someone is religious, they do things like pray in public for all to hear. That act that Jesus said to the Pharisees, don't do that, don't pray in public, instead go pray in private. 
You see, when you're following after Jesus and you're wanting to be a righteous person, it's not about what's happening on the outside. It's about what's happening in the heart. What, what, what's going on on the inside? When a religious person does an act, it's about what they can get. I'm trying to get favor with God. I'm trying to gain God's pleasure in my life. I'm trying to be rewarded by God. So I'm going to give generously so God will give to me. I'm going to go to church this week so God can bless my week. I've, I've done some things wrong, and so I'm going to try to make it up to God so that maybe he will forgive me. And all of the actions of the righteous are done so that they can get things. But it's when you're righteous, it's not about what you can get. It's about what you've been given. When you've been given the righteousness of God, when you've been given freedom in God, you then act in a way that gives that freely to others. Righteous, righteous people uh, come with a spirit of pride. I am better than you. I am acting in a better way than you are. But righteous people have a spirit of humility. Right, religious people, religious people separate themselves from the broken. They, they become separate and pulled out of this world, while righteous people go to the broken. Now, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. There was a broken man who had been battered and beaten lying on the side of the road, and religious people came by this man, and they ignored him. They didn't help him. But one Samaritan came and saw this broken man and couldn't help but stop. And to pick him up and to carry him to a place of healing. You see, righteous people care about the broken world around them. Righteous people care about the brokenness around them. And they run towards it. They go into those hurting neighborhoods. They go into those broken families. They go into those broken relationships and they pour out the love of God so that there can be healing and restoration. They, they run towards those things. Religious people separate themselves from those things. They, they, they distance themselves. They protect themselves. They build up boundaries and walls so that that dirtiness can't get in. And Jesus, through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is going to say, woe to the right to the religious of this world, and blessed are the righteous. Blessed are those who fully follow after Jesus. The righteous people follow the example of Jesus. They do what Jesus does. They follow what Jesus says. And religious people follow rules. So, how does... Uh, how does God tell us to be better and brighter, to be salt and light? He says, live by the Bible and become better, become saltier, become brighter. You know that if you're someone who's living by God's word and you're living for God, that you are going to make every situation that you walk into better. Just think about this in your small group. If you're a religious person, you walk into your small group, what's that going to look like? People are going to walk out of that group going, oh, that religious person was really smart. They knew lots of things. They knew more things than me. I just couldn't say anything because I didn't want to like get in their way. But if you're a righteous person, if you're someone who's been changed by the grace of God, you make that small group better. And they're not going to walk out of that group going, oh, look at that person. They're going to walk out of that group going, that was a great group. 
That was a great time together. We loved each other. We grew together. We served one another. You see, God has called us to be salt and light in this world. And when we're following after Jesus, we become that salt and light. He gives us the instruction manual on how to be brighter and how to be better in this world. You, as a follower of Jesus, should make your home, your group, your church, your neighborhood, your community, your school, your team better and brighter. You, being a follower of Jesus, should be a blessing to the people around you. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and I want to give you a really practical takeaway as we go from the spot, but I want to ask you to start filling out your connection card even during this moment. And here's the challenge that I want to give you as you walk away from this time together. What do I do with all of this instruction? Well, obviously today we've talked a lot about the Bible. We've said that the Bible is our instruction manual for life, and we're going to be able to build the best life possible by following the Bible, fully following Jesus so we can fully know the Word of God. And that's an interesting challenge. And let me tell you the secret to that success is an open Bible. You see, an open Bible is a Bible that you read. An open Bible is a Bible that you spend time in. An open Bible is a Bible that you allow to transform you. And when we are convinced that we believe the Bible and we should obey the Bible and we can know Jesus fully through the Bible, then this needs to become a regular part of our lives. I heard Pastor Rick Warren talking last week about an open Bible plan. And so over the past week, I've been doing what's called the open Bible plan myself. And it's been incredibly encouraging, and it's really simple. You simply take your Bible, and you open it, and you leave it on your nightstand. This open Bible plan then asks you to read the Bible twice a day. First, you read it when you wake up in the morning. And it's super easy because it's already open, and it's already there on your nightstand. Instead of getting on your phone, or jumping into the news, or getting into the tasks of the day, you first start by reading your open Bible. And then the second time you read your Bible is right when you go to bed, the last thing that you do before you shut your eyes. Now, if you're like me, technology has crept into your, even your bed. There are things that, that take your time and attention even when you're trying to drift off to sleep. My phone has become my alarm clock, so I'm often setting my alarm for the next day on my phone and then get a text message and an email and a, a notification for social media and down the rabbit hole I go. Instead of ending my day on social media, what if we ended it on the Bible? And here's the challenge in the open Bible plan. It's read until God speaks. Sometimes that may be one sentence. Sometimes that may be one chapter. Sometimes that may be one book. But hear from God when you read that open Bible. Maybe there's a challenge or something that can encourage you or a thought that you want to meditate on or a truth that you want to investigate. But allow that to be absorbed into the beginning of your day and the end of your day, and see if it doesn't transform you. If you're someone that's had trouble connecting to the Bible, this simple plan can help you, but it's not the only plan. There are many ways to engage in reading the Bible, and I want to challenge you and encourage you to pick a way. There's read through the Bible in a year plans. There's Bible studies that you can become a part of. You can talk to your small group about what you're reading and when you're reading it. At Branch Life Church, we're going through Matthew. You can read that along with us each and every week. But an open Bible is a Bible that transforms. Here it is. Life. And God has given us the instruction manual for that life. If you're having trouble connecting with God's Word, would you try the open Bible plan for the next seven days? What I want to ask you to do, if you're really to take this seven-day challenge, 
Read the Bible as soon as you wake up. Read it right before you fall asleep. Nothing else before it, nothing else after it. Would you let us know in your connection card, I accept the seven-day open Bible plan. And then next week when you join us, let us know how it went. Was it encouraging? Was it life transforming? I've had a Bible plan that I've been a part of for the last several years. Over the last week or so, I've been doing this open Bible instead. I'm loving it. It's fantastic. I'm, my Bible right now is open to Acts chapter 3, and I'm seeing some incredible things happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would love to see that happen for you. And then if God speaks to you, would you just obey him? Would you just do what he says to do? And I know some of you out there are in the midst of uh, making a choice. You're in a dark season. You're in a season of discouragement. Let God's words speak to you. Go to God's words for the answers. And when he clearly says, do something, do it. And when he clearly says, don't, don't. And then try to seek godly wisdom for everything that falls in between. Let's use God's word as our instruction manual for life. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you'll see us, you'll be back with us next week as we dive into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't forget to fill out your connection card. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great rest of your week.